the journalists and the media generally needs to find ways of telling about climate change where it's not necessarily the issue, but where is where it is the underlying dimension. You have to find ways of uh, making millions of people engage with climate change now or within the next you know, couple of years, really. So then the question becomes, what sort of ideas have the potential to mobilize millions and millions of people in the climate struggle? That, you know, what are the solutions to climate change? Well, there are millions of solutions. But the, re the, the, the reason, uh, how do you mobilize millions of people for some of those solutions? That's, that's the, the key question to ask. And I think one way of answering that question is to say, well, what, are, what is the most important thing for people mo all over the planet in order to secure their family and so on? It's a job. The job gives you income. You can pay your kids uh, through school. You can have food on your table. It's an immediate need here and now. Everybody needs a job in order to survive. I think it's easier to mobilize people around that idea than many other ideas that we have uh, on, the, on, on the horizon. Yeah. Okay, so I'll, I'll put it like this. There are so many emer good emergent climate narratives around. I mean, there's so ingenuity, so much ingenuity, good way of making a positive spins, you know, on climate change. But all those positive and creative and innovative narratives, they need to be connected with some sort of structural power. And I think that many of the beautiful new climate narratives around are definitely more appealing than bring back coal to the Rust Belt. But there are jobs being brought back to the Rust Belt because behind the unconvincing narratives of Trump, there's structural power. Behind a lot of the exciting climate narratives that we have, there's too little structural power. So that's why I think that uh, mobilizing people, giving the sense that collectives have the power, is one of the key, key elements of making narratives come true. You know, if you, you want to, that's the thing with narratives, right? You want them to come true, but they won't come true just by being very convincing. They will come through through being aligned with a kind of popular collective power that steers the Anthropocene into a different direction. My name is Andreas Itterstein. I'm associate uh, professor at the Institute of Journalism and Media Studies, Oslo and Akershus University College of Applied Sciences, no less. <laughs> um, and I'm also the deputy leader of Concerned Scientist Norway. I have courses in climate change journalism. And I'm also quite involved in building a kind of coalition between researchers, unions, churches, environmental organizations called Bridge to the Future, which is partly based on a, on a book I wrote five years ago and uh, some other publications. So uh, climate change is uh, all over my life. <laughs> 
the reason I got into this is um, I got in quite late. Like I say around 2006 or something like that. And it was not all for the kind of uh, noble reasons. Well, it's not innoble either, but I started working here and I needed something to research on. And in 2006, two things were very hot. Climate change, because it was the run-up to the... Uh, the uh, International Climate Panel's reports came out, Al Gore's movie came out, and Inconvenient Truth. So that was a hot topic. And the other thing was blogging. So there was a lot of people blogging. So I wrote my first research articles on how the bloggers discussed climate change, basically. And that uh, kind of that meant I, I start, started reading the books and I got involved with it. There's another thread as well, which is really... Uh, that goes uh, further back, which is a, a kind of theoretical and political interest, is that uh, within common sense, what people find as natural, there is also good sense. And I have this long project of many years finding out what is good sense and what is good sense on climate change. So that was actually an, an uh, so I wrote my PhD thesis was called Norwegian climate change policies between hegemony and good sense. So finding out what is really good sense on climate change has been a kind of theoretical interest of mine as well. So again, climate change is something that I approach from different angles, from a theoret theoretical lens as a very practical, urgent issue, and now also as a teacher of journalism. So. So I like to come at climate change from various angles. So let's let's first take what was what used to be synonymous with the climate debate. Like when I started the climate debate like 10 years ago, if you said the climate debate, well, then most people would think that oh, is there climate change or not or if there is climate change, is it caused by humans or not? That is still by many recognized as the climate debate. And all the academic literature on insecurity and do we know and the sun and so forth, you know, all of these are well-known features of that kind of climate debate. One aspect of this good sense on, on, on uh, uh, climate change for me is just instead of asking what are the truths about global warming, ask the slightly different question, who is interested in the truths of global warming? Because I don't think we are all equally interested in global warming. And if you need proof of that, you know, just look at the president of the United States at the moment. You know, obviously, you can interpret Donald Trump as an individual, somebody doesn't understand climate change. But isn't it more plausible to argue that the reason why he wanted to make America great again by bringing coal jobs back into the U.S. Rust Belt is really because he's not interested in the truth about global warming. And it's not a personal lack of interest. You know, who is backing him up? Where does he come from? What sort of interest does he represent? I mean, these are the kind of questions that I think are obvious for social scientists, but I think they're being asked far too uh, seldom, really. Because there's all this talk about, do we know how oh, it's so complex, climate change, or oh, is it the sun, and so on. So, 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 so for a long time, we were stuck in that mode of discussion, clim climate change. And I think that we need to, to move the discussion further. Mm. I mean, in the last climate summit in Bonn, mm. there was an interview with Al Gore. Al Gore is, of course, the U.S. former almost president uh, who is most 
well known for his engagement with climate change. And he said that, well, I've tried to convince Trump, but I've given up. So he says that. Uh, I don't think that the lack of people trying to convince Trump is really the problem here. I think it is more a question of mobilizing the people who understand what kind of danger uh, Trump represents to, to, to the biosphere and to what we need, and really to understand that it is not about convincing Trump. It is about uh, uh, convincing all those who understand the severity of climate change to come up with strategies that can defeat Trump. Well, you say dugnad, which is the kind of voluntary effect that everybody pulls in together. And on one level, on one level, that's an apt word. Uh, I mean, Christine Halvorsen, the research director of Cicero, sometimes uses that word dugnad. We all need to pitch in. But I think that's we, we partly have to move away from this idea that we are all in it together. Because as I say, people are affected differently by climate change and people have different interests in responding to climate change. There will be people who will, to their very last breath, fight against any attempt to curb climate change. That's, I, th I, just, I think just the last 20 years proves that, really. I mean, look at, look at the international COP uh, agreements. And, I mean, we have a Paris Agreement now, supposedly very radical because it aims for, for 2 degrees target or even pushing down to 1.5 degrees. But what have the nations actually delivered? What are the promises? Well, the promises will bring the planet to a 3 or 4 degrees warming. I mean, it's an, I think it's important that people understand the Paris Agreement as a metaphor. If there was a peace conference and the overarching aim was to reduce the amount of nuclear weapons, that, and everybody agreed with that. And then as a, as a step towards that, all countries voluntarily uh, uh, decide how they're going to decrease their own growth of nuclear arsenals for the next year so that we will not have many, many more nuclear weapons. We'll have a little more. So how would you judge that peace conference? Would you judge that peace conference on that opening phrase saying that we want a peaceful world without arms? Or will you judge the merits of that peace conference by the actual increase of nuclear weapons brought to the table by people at the peace conference? And I think there's an under-communication of how loose the Paris Agreement is, how, uh, how, uh, how there's no sanctions. There's, no, there's, there's talk of an expert committee reviewing, there's more reports and so on and so forth. But we've had so many years now with these summits, with these promises. And when, when promises are broken, like the Kyoto Protocol, Canada broke its target, you know, the, well, the, the U.S. Air Force won't invade... Canadian territory because they broke a climate promise. So it's easy to break them. And, 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 and given that this is a fact, I think we, we need to find ways of mobilizing millions and millions of people to f come up with different kind of solutions. I mean, how long are we going to judge politicians, state leaders, just by their words? Oh, climate change is the biggest threat of our lives, is the biggest challenge facing humanity. I mean, 
I think we've heard those phrases for quite some time now. And I think all those words with no corresponding lack, not just corresponding lack of action, but lack of the sort of actions that will bring emissions down fast enough is a real wake-up call. And I think that uh, uh, this is, what I'm saying now is, 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 is a, a valid assessment of how things are at the moment. And both researchers and journalists or anybody really wanting to look seriously at climate change, they need to kind of uh, take that as their starting point. Well, generally, I think that although the idea of climate justice is fairly known now in civil society, you know, trade unions will talk about just transition. And there are many, many organizations recognizing that the hardest impacts of climate change comes in the global south, poor people, low infrastructure, and they have least responsibility for it. So there's an understanding of climate justice. When you take that concern and you take it up to the levels of international climate negotiations, justice becomes equity. You can look up that word equity. It's, an, uh, it's a kind of, there, there, there are hints of justice elements to the word equity, but it's a, it's a far milder expression. And in concrete terms, in climate negotiations, this also deals with how much money are we going to use for climate repairment in the South. So there's been discussions for many years about that kind of, kind of green fund, how we're going to compensate a bit. But, but I don't think we really understand the challenge of justice properly. We need to, first of all, we need to talk about justice and not just equity, which is a very kind of technical and almost unknown term. Uh, but we also need to understand that, uh, okay, on a global level, uh, we have to uh, cut emissions by you know 80 or 90 percent within the next 20 or 30 years. But most obviously, most of those cuts needs to take place within the countries that have uh, most responsibility for the climate change already uh, taking place. And we also have the, uh, uh, the a development capacity in order to, uh, to do it. So I think uh, to introduce and to really understand the seriousness of climate justice is one uh, aspect of the discussion that we need much more of, also in the public discussion and in the media. Because it's a kind of technical term. Let's look, try and look up equity now in Google. See if we can, if if I can just be reminded of. I kind of discovered it. I'm going through some of the official text, and I kind of well, what does this word equity really means? Let's see here. Equity. Um, equity is the value of an asset less the value of all liabilities on that asset. Uh, may refer to contents, finance, accounting and ownership, business and law, education, companies and organizations. It's, it's kind of unclear. Let's see here. Uh, there, there should be more business and law, companies and organizations. Yeah, it's a strange... Inequity, well, there is a, a parallel to in, inequality as well. So there's a kind of, un, there is a justice understanding of it. But it's a very kind of opaque term. I, I won't even say that I understand it completely, but I notice that that's the kind of uh, language that is often employed in international climate uh, negotiations. And I think part of the reason why they use that term rather than justice is that justice is much more connected to your emotions. It's more direct. It's more explicit. Um, and I think we have to be explicit. I'm sorry. We really have to be explicit. We can't just kind of 
hide our challenges within uh, opaque words. Um, so, over the last decade or so, I think it's fair to say that climate change, from being this issue, this scientific issues that kind of societies need to take seriously, it has evolved into becoming something much more. It has evolved into becoming an, a dimension, a dimension of other issues, a dimension of economics. In Norway, we have the green shift which was the buzzword of 2015, which doesn't really deal with climate change and global warming primarily, but an increase in unemployment in the oil sector, the, the fact that we might get the Dutch disease in Norway by putting all our eggs in one basket, say the oil basket, so that maybe we have to, to invest differently. So this idea of green shift, in a sense, take the climate uh, change debate and, and makes it into an economic debate. And you have the same thing with Perez Stockner's book on, on climate psychology, you know, where climate change no longer has a kind of glaciers as their objects. Climate change has human beings as their object. How are we cognitively construed? Are we short-sighted? All those kinds of questions are dealt with in Perez Stockner's books. And then among artists, among uh, other academics, the idea of climate change as stories or as frames, comes in as important. So now climate change becomes this communicative challenge where we have to find new ways of telling stories of climate change, getting people interested in climate change. Again, a focus more on how we kind of captivate audiences, how we captivate human beings. So these are just a few examples of how climate change has kind of morphed from being a separate issue that society as a whole, in a sense, needs to understand to becoming an, 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 an dimension encompassing different aspects of society. You know, having to deal with energy politics, with transport politics, with area planning, with ethics. So, so that's kind of the approach I've tried to use also doing my own courses in climate change journalism is that the journalists and the media generally needs to find ways of telling about climate change where it's not necessarily the issue but where, is, where it is the underlying dimension. I'm kind of a little bit hesitant to embark upon wishful thinking when it comes to the media. I mean, if, if you gave me a drawing board of what the media supposedly could become and so on and so forth, I'm, I'm sure I could cook up something. But I think we have to kind of uh, have our expectations a little bit uh, kind of to the ground and understanding that the media, yes, it is about uh, journalism, it is about news, it is about important things for society, but it's also about business, about clicks, about you know, gaining what is most immediate, you know. So, so almost independently of how we reframe climate change, can we ever, ever compete with sex? I mean, you just have to be a little bit realistic about it, you know. <laughs> uh, but most definitely, I think there are a lot of things that uh, could be done within the media. And I think this idea about making climate change into a dimension of more aspects uh, is a, an idea 
supported by some of the media themselves. I know that, you know, the website Energy and Climate Change in Norway, Energy or Klima, with Anders Bjartnes as the editor, I think they have some of the same ideas in terms of making climate change into an energy issue more than anything else. And as I mentioned, you know, there are transport journalists in, in Norwegian newspapers who, who has kind of been in, uh, put in charge of thinking through the climate change dimension a little bit. So I think that would, that would help if, if uh, the media could make climate change into a dimension of more of their stories, that would uh, help. But I don't think it is the media that's going to be the vanguard of change. Um, mostly because I think that the media is not the place where you will get that message of system change, not climate change. Because media is uh, against kind of oppression, you know, wants to help the little man, but it's also part of systems. So I think that, that, you know, when demonstrators in Copenhagen or in Lima, in Peru, during climate summits, they put system change, not climate change, on their banners. Many researchers, I think, will think that, well, this system change might sound like a good idea. And maybe some journalists also will think so privately. But they're not, their freedom to communicate about the problems of systems are not, you know, abundant. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a American uh, academic Marxist, Frederick Jameson, who has, who has uh, made this quote that I've heard in many environmental conferences repeated, which is that, is used to say that it's becoming much easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Our imagination can easily think about the catastrophes, climate change, the floods, you know, think about those horror movies, the day after tomorrow, and so on and so on. Hollywood has already dealt with all those kinds of disasters and catastrophes, the road with Cormac McCarthy, you know, the dystopias of climate change, gone amok. These are familiar imagina imaginaries for us. The idea that we could do things differently, that we could just decide to go to renewable energy instead of fossil fuels at the point of production, rather than hoping, crossing our fingers, that one beautiful day oil and gas will no longer be sold in the market and some, everybody will turn into solar power, as if this magical, invisible hand of the market is going to drive the green shift. I just don't think we have time for it. So I think also I think we have to imagine going beyond systems that really hinder us to see how we can actually create a new world where we would actually be able to have a, a, a livable biosphere for, for, for hundreds of generations rather than uh, tens of generations. So now I gave you some of the theoretical perspectives in that we have. We can have fun discussions about that. But I think the main issues, the point where I'm most dogmatic, is that you have to find ways of uh, making millions of people engage with climate change now or within the next you know, couple of years, really. So then the question becomes, what sort of ideas have the potential to mobilize millions and millions of people in the climate struggle? That, you know, what are the solutions to climate change? Well, there are millions of solutions. But the, re the, the, the reason, uh, how do you mobilize millions of people for some of those solutions? That's, that's the, the key question to ask. And I think one way of answering that question is to say, well, what, are, what is the most important thing for people mo all over the planet in order to secure their family and so on? It's a job. The job gives you income, 
You can pay your kids uh, through school. You can have food on your table. It's an immediate need here and now. Everybody needs a job in order to survive. So how can you make that immediate need into a need that would also secure uh, conditions for all living and breathing things in the future? Well, that's, the, that's where the idea of climate jobs comes about. And it, the, the idea of climate jobs is very sim easy, really. You can look at the charts. Where do emissions come from in Norway? In Norway, about a third or something comes from oil and gas. There's another one, uh, 20% from industry and so on. And you can just look at what sort of jobs would bring emissions down 80% in that sector or in that sector or, or across the sectors. And by doing the calculus, most in many countries, it will be three areas where you would really get emissions down very rapidly if you uh, started employing people immediately to, to, uh, to change things. Within renewable sectors, you know, uh, offering uh, work in, in offshore wind, uh, uh, solar power, and so on, in, in the transport sectors, getting people onto bus buses and trains and so on, that would reduce emissions by a significant amount of time. And by renovating our, our, our buildings, our houses, and you know, saving energy, building workers. So this idea of, about the green shift is sometimes portrayed as who can come up with this really, really clever Peter Smart solution. But just think of building workers, renovating, isolating a house. That's not a technology we have to wait for. We, just have, we don't have, just have to cross our fingers. We just need to get those people employed. And we need to do it, not primarily because it's going to be the new resource that we're going to live off instead of oil, but, but because we need uh, that. I mean, on the same time, we need health. We need education as part of being a society. We need to make sure that emissions don't go amok. And that's why climate jobs is something that needs to be the responsibility of government. We can't just hope for the odd climate jobs. Climate jobs only becomes climate jobs when they come in great numbers, initiated, and they replace uh, uh, some of the parts of the economy that 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 leads to emission, uh, most notably in the Norwegian case, of course, uh, oil and gas production. I mean, most of our money, most of our investments are going into drilling for more oil in the Barents Sea. Mm. We need to to channel those investments into climate jobs instead. That's how we solve climate change, and I think that's an intuitive idea that you can mobilize many people to think that this is, oh, that is, this sounds like a good idea. I think it's easier to mobilize people around that idea than many other ideas that we have uh, on, the, on, the, on the horizon. Well, the thing is, the thing here really, and this is a big challenge, I recognize it's not easy. Uh, what is the bottom line? You know, what, what, is, what, is, um, what is the starting point that is most fundamental? Take in, in the, Nor the Norwegian government commissioned a report on green competitiveness. Uh, and they understood this idea of green competitiveness, that they need to find new workplaces, yes, as opposed to oil in the future, yes. That's the same as with climate jobs. But they made another bottom line to it as well. It needs to be profitable. It, 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 so, so not how do we go from oil to different jobs because of climate change and the biosphere as the bottom line. In between, you put in a, a, a second bottom line, which is how can it be profitable? And even how can it be as profitable as oil? 
And of course, in the in, in science, we have the slogan. Uh, well, how would you put it in English? Um, uh, as you shout into the forest, you'll get the answers back, right? So, if you say that the bottom line that we're going to find something that is as equally profitable as oil that has accumulated in billions of years under the ground, which has ground rent. Well, obviously, surprise, surprise, journalists will find, oh, you can't earn as much money by cutting people's hair or, or mending bikes. or So there's all kinds of ridicule of that because, of course, if you frame it that you have to find something as profitable as oil, then you won't find the answer. Or at the very least, that will limit your response to climate change. You won't maybe uh, uh, renovate old houses. No, to renovate old houses is not necessarily the most uh, profitable thing you do. You know, it's not certain that you know oil companies will all sort of all of a sudden shift their investments from oil to renovating old houses. But if you take the climate change and the biosphere as your bottom line, as then you understand that renovating old houses is one of the fastest way of cutting emissions because it, it, it and this is you know many institutions have pointed to it. this is the fastest way we can do it so how can you make sure that you get jobs because of climate change rather than get jobs because they're the lucrative alternative to oil that's 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 the hard part and there's more work needs to be done on that but but i that work needs to take climate change as the bottom line the limits of nature do not respect the complicated nature of climate negotiations, the complicated natures of government coalitions, how to recognize, I mean, the, 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 the boundaries of nature don't respect uh, the, the elements of climate skepticism within the Norwegian government. They don't, simply don't care. Yeah. Okay, so I'll, I'll put it like this. There are so many emer good emergent climate narratives around. I mean, there's so ingenuity, so much ingenuity, creative ways, good way of making a positive spins, you know, on climate change. Perez Ben-Stockness often talks about the need to be positive and so on. But all those positive and creative and innovative narratives, they need to be connected with some sort of structural power. That's the thing. So, if you only have the good ideas and you don't have the good power behind those ideas, well, you know, there'll be a lot of people saying that, well, I told you so all along as we go down the runaway climate change, uh, uh, you know, more floods and so on uh, way. But if you connect those narratives to structural power, say within unions who have their primary job is to get a job for their members, and if they fight for jobs and they are attracted by the narratives, and they also fight for it, and they have structural power, then we can start to move things. Bill McGibbon is probably the most uh, uh, kind of famous international climate activist, former journalists and so on, written some you know, famous stories in Rolling Stone and so on. And he, and he makes the point all the time. I remember he made this point in, I think in 2011, he was in Norway and received the Sophie Prize from Jostein Gorder. And he said that, well, we're winning the argument, but we're not winning the war. And I think that many of the beautiful new climate narratives around are definitely more appealing than bring back coal to the Rust Belt. But there are jobs being brought back to the Rust Belt. Because behind the unconvincing narratives of Trump, 
there's structural power. Behind a lot of the exciting climate narratives that we have, there's too little structural power. So that's why I think that uh, mobilizing people, giving the sense that collectives have the power, is one of the key, key elements of making narratives come true. You know, if you, you want to, that's the thing with narratives, you know, you want them to come true, but they won't come true just by being very convincing. They will come through through being aligned with a kind of popular collective power that steers the Anthropocene into a different direction.